Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. Hey, this is DeRay. Welcome to Bossy of the People. In this episode, it's me, Sam Kai, and Diara talking about the news that you do not know from the past week, but you should, especially when it comes to race, equity, and justice. And then I sit down with two incredible people back to back. The first is Miles Johnson to discuss black queer representation in the media and a host of things around culture. I trust Miles so much about the way he thinks about culture and blackness. And then I sit down with Mario Rosser to talk about his run to be a city council person in New York City representing District 9. Here we go. My advice for this week is trust your gut. There have been a lot of things happening in my world where I'm like, oh, this feels a certain way or like this person is giving me some vibes. And I'm like, you know, well, let me da da da. And today was one of those days where I got confirmation. I'm like, trust your gut. They're like, my spidey senses don't go off randomly. Trust your spidey senses. Ask the questions. But when you know the answer, trust the answer. Here we go. Family, welcome to another episode Juneteenth style of Pod Save the People. I'm Diara Ballinger. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Diara Ballinger. And I'm Sam Sinyangwe at Sam Sway on Twitter. I'm Dre at DIY on Twitter. Well, I feel like every week for us is a Juneteenth week. Um, however, it's official now as President Biden made Juneteenth a federal holiday. Now, should we celebrate? Absolutely. Does much change for us? Not really. So I think it's just been... Interesting in terms of where we are, given the year and a half that we've had, and I guess the 400 years prior to that, and just really, you know, thinking about Juneteenth, how it was made a federal holiday, how now every corporation and a mama gave Juneteenth off. I don't know what instruction they gave to white folks to do with a Juneteenth. However, many people had it off. So, you know, things to think about, to reflect on. Obviously, the struggle continues, but it was beautiful. I was in Brooklyn yesterday in Fort Greene Park. And I just, just to be in the presence of such incredible energy. I think, yes, the Juneteenth of it all, the celebrating excellence and joy of it all, but just the fact that now in New York, we can be together again. So I don't, I'm feeling, I'm feeling inspired. I'm feeling hopeful and grateful you know, just trying to figure out where to go from here and, and what Juneteenth will develop into since it is a federal holiday. Now, obviously, in many places, Juneteenth has already been a holiday in so many respects and how, so many traditions and, you know, and rituals have followed year and year and year again. But yeah, just it's just interesting to reflect on. What, what did y'all Black people do for your Juneteenth? You know, Diara, it was this juxtaposition of the symbols and the substance, right? This, like, it does matter to commemorate Juneteenth. It does matter to have a space to talk about the history, to gather as a community. At the same time, it is like this juxtaposition of that and seeing Congress move so quickly. It was something like 21 days or so for them to make this a federal holiday, and Election Day still isn't a federal holiday. And they still haven't moved on all the substantive change that they promised, right? Like, we still don't have a new Voting Rights Act. We still don't have the For the People Act. We still don't have 
I mean, a whole host of things, economic and student loan debt cancellation, like a whole host of things that would actually in a material way help black people are being held up while the symbols sail through Congress with full support. So I think that is sort of the the frustration in this moment is like, yes, it does matter. This is something, but it's clearly not enough. And in lieu of, you know, the substance, it becomes sort of this, this controversy, right? This conversation about like, are we just getting this because folks are really not trying to actually give us something substantive? And I think that's been what I've seen so much of the conversation is focused on. I will say the thing that sort of blew my mind is just how far we've come in terms of the public conversation about this stuff. And all of you remember 2014, 2015. I remember being the guy on Twitter who would be like, I think this thing is racist. And people are like, DeRay makes everything about race. So you're like, Juneteenth, and people are like, he wants to celebrate or like anybody, insert me for a host of other activists and organizers. This year, I was out at a not club, but like a lounge it is a lot of people there. People are drinking. Da, da 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 I go to say hi to my friend, and he goes, oh, I'm happy you came over here because this guy had a question. He was asking me about something. I'm like, what's he asking you about? He's like giving this boy a quiz on Juneteenth in the club. It's like maybe midnight. And he's like, what is Juneteenth? And I'm like, is this a test? He's like, where was it? Why was it important? I'm like, what are we? What, what's happening in the club? But it was like such a, and the guy was like real. He was like, people should know this. And he wasn't even like, it wasn't like a high mighty thing. And he was probably a little tipsy, but he like wanted all his friends to be able to not only like explain what Juneteenth was, but talk about Galveston, talk about how it only freed, you know, everybody wasn't free because of it. It was just one of those things where I was like, we've come a long way that it's the club at midnight and people asking people about Juneteenth. And legitimately, this is like a real conversation. So that warmed my heart. I do, like both of you, worry about the symbolism of it all. And Lord knows uh, the police are still beating us up and uh, the voting restrictions for the midterms. Lord, I don't even we all might have to be voting captains on our block. It might be a block (laughs) by block. Everybody is a voting like, you know, it might be more than all hands. We're going to need all limbs on deck for this next one, because I just read today that Georgia is going to get 10,000 more people kicked off the rolls before the next election. And you're like, the Juneteenth holiday doesn't do that. So uh, good good to celebrate. It was cool to see people out yesterday. And I remain worried. Last comment on the subject is CBC singing, lift every voice and sing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Y'all, we trying to keep these young people interested, right? We trying to... <laughs> we are really trying to do some prep work, talking about the midterms. Just... Come on, please, just please, just stop, just please. They really are helping us. They really are not helping us. I mean, I just was like, oh, they're going to sing the whole entire song. And poor Nancy, she's just trying to mouth the words to she that she knows. Um, okay, so the Juneteenth of it all, my news, it really, I, it really spoke to me. So I hope it does the same for y'all. But it's essentially about these poetic jars and pottery that were made by an enslaved man Back in the 19th century, his name is David Drake. Um, And his work now, all these years later, is setting records at auctions. Um, Being the star of the show in in a lot of museums now, you know, the the centerpiece of representing um, the artistry of enslaved Black folk. Essentially from 1619 beyond, 
Um, this is a New York Times piece, y'all. It, it talks about black craftspeople, both freed and enslaved, and they work to produce all this brilliant and beautiful architecture, handcrafts, decorative arts across the American South. Um, and it's it's so fascinating that I came across this article because my mom sent me earlier this week this digital archive of black craftspeople. And they actually have an Instagram, too, that is really, really, really dope. And we'll put a link into the Instagram, y'all, so you can see it because it really does. It profiles so many amazing crafts, but also just kind of architectural works of enslaved black folks. So I was reading this piece and thinking about this digital archive that my mom sent me. You know, it was all fascinating to me because obviously, like, our ancestors made incredible contributions to art, architecture, music, science, agriculture, culinary arts, carpentry. But we never hear about it with the frequency that really reflects, like, the weight and the impact all of this work brought to this country. And second, when we hear about it, I feel like we're supposed to be surprised, right? Like, even this New York Times piece a little bit was, like, kind of presents everything like, wow, you know, and they did this. But obviously we did these things, right? You know, and as just a reminder of some of the things that enslaved labor built in this country, obviously the White House, the U.S. Capitol building, Wall Street, the Trinity Church in New York, UNC Chapel Hill, Monticello, Mount Vernon, the University of Virginia, the list goes on and on and on and on and on. So it's interesting to see that of all of these things and all these manifestations of the artistry and the brilliance of enslaved people, Museums are really fascinated with pottery and with pots. And so in particular, the work of David Drake. And what makes his work so interesting is many things. But one of the things is the inscriptions that he puts onto these works. Um, And so the inscriptions are both beautiful, but also defiant. So in one of the jars, which people are saying that it dates back to April 12th, 1836, it was two years after South Carolina passed an anti-literacy law that um, was designed, obviously, to prevent enslaved people from reading and writing. And David Drake had inscribed in this one piece, Cantonation, which is a variant of Cantonation, the state of being yoked or chained into the pot. Just bad mofo. Um, So what's going to happen now is like, you know, since these jars and since it's kind of the, the artistry and crafts of enslaved people are kind of like on trend now, you know, we're going to be seeing more of it. Um, and in fact, this particular piece at auction, they were saying was going to go from 40000 to $60,000, but actually went for $369,000, which is the highest price an auction record for David Drake's work. His work is being bought by art museums in particular. In 2020, buyers included the Fine Arts Museum of San Francisco, the St. Louis Art Museum, the Art Institute of Chicago, the Met, And the International African American Museum, which is in Charleston, South Carolina, I don't know why they lumped International African Museum in with these others. The International African American Museum, which I'm honored to have worked with and be a partner of, the intentionality behind this museum is actually to highlight the cultural contributions and achievement of enslaved people. And they're going to do that with like centrality and rigor. And so these other museums where I think it is on trend with the International African American Museum, this is something that they have specific intentionality around. As museums are you know, being criticized and being forced into a space where they have to show how they're being equitable, how they're being more inclusive with what they're showing, you know, a lot of these museums are really after David Drake's work. Timothy Burgard, who is a curator at the Fine Arts Museums, so that is the museum that won the auction to get this David Drake piece I spoke about earlier. And he says that, um, so this museum plans now 
to symbolically center the issue of, of the slavery system, which historically has been minimized and marginalized by museums. I don't know if that's what the issue is, <laughs> but, but at least David Drake's work is gonna be, is gonna be shown in this museum and hopefully there's a little bit more deeper thinking into why his work is important um, and why these institutions need to be more inclusive and more equitable when it comes to what, what they're showing. This was really fascinating to me. They're actually going to do a tour of David Drake and other and other works of enslaved black folks who did all kinds of beautiful crafts. Um, and it's going to be showing in New York and Boston, which is the first time a show of its kind will be showing outside of the South. So just wanted to bring it to the pot as we celebrate the achievements and excellence of the black folk. So this was a really fascinating story. Just reading through some of the messages that were engraved in this pottery, it almost reminded me of tweets in a way, like the brevity that you had to be, the limits in terms of just the physical space to transcribe a very, you know, it had to be something that was meaningful, that was short, that was a certain number of characters that you could fit and, and transcribe in this, in this very physical piece of pottery. Um, and the politics of that, of, of what you put in, how you describe what you are going through in an experience where obviously everything that you put on that pot, you're going to be, uh, has going to be, you know, read and reviewed and you could be punished for and, and, and harmed for. Um, and yet, and still you see these acts of resistance, uh, the ways in which in some ways, you know, things that are, that transcend a lifetime. Um, so thinking about, you know, in one of the, the pieces of pottery, uh, it's transcribed and says, LM says this handle will crack. And, you know, LM uh, scholars uh, believe is referring to Lewis Miles, um, who was uh, the person who had enslaved David. You know, again, saying this, this handle will crack, the, the handle still hasn't cracked, right? And so, like, this was almost like putting this on here saying, actually, this is not going to crack. Like, this is well made, right? Like, and, like he don't know. He don't know anything. And yeah. the proof is here. And, like, the proof would only come out, like, down the road, right? Like, this was, like, an intergenerational play. And, like, like we're seeing it here. And, like, like that is, like, like the cunning, like, the, the resistance of it all, like, the way in which you're able to, to make meaning out of this tiny bit of space that you have access to doing something that is illegal at the time, like, is wild, right? And, like, and like seeing the product of that today is really cool. And at the same time, like, there is this other element, which, which you spoke to, Diara, of all of these museums, you know, auctioning it off and, like, trying to commodify it and buy it and have, like a piece of their museum talk about this and and there's something a little bit off about that but at the same time like the piece itself is powerful and and it's it's important like this is something that, that I ha was not aware of in terms of like it just an art form and like a you know a, another dimension of creativity um in the context of this period and so I, I would encourage everybody to to check it out I'll second everything that was said and you know with this made me think about all the things that black people didn't sign but we made you know it reminds me too of Jack Daniels how it came out later that like a black man did that like a black man was the distiller came out with the formula did all of it and thank god there's somebody who was able to like reclaim that but there wasn't a huge you know that was something we learned about recently and i think about all that they said one of the um one of the pots was as large as 40 gallons i mean that's a lot of clay that's a lot of pot like just to carry that much to make that much that's a lot of clay to do a 40 gallon stoneware pot before electricity, you know, was <laughs> was a thing that people had access to. I mean, that's incredible. And yeah, it just made me think about, so shout out, Sam, that was the idea of the like, the cunning uh, messages. 
you get 10 points for that. I'm like, that's good. And like, I just think about all the things that black people didn't sign, all the all the paintings, all the pictures, all the drawings, all the silverware, all the that like black people literally toiled to make and some like slave owner put their name on it and like commodified it. And uh, that's what this made me think of. So DR, thanks for like unearthing this uh, this piece of history and reminding us. And just how gross is it that like they're still making money off this? You know, like the, just the whole, I mean, we've already said it, but it's like even in reclaiming the history. That's what I feel like. Like, I feel like it should be home. Like, I don't know where home is, yes. but it should be home. It shouldn't be at a museum, particularly museums where we aren't meant to feel welcome anyway, right? So who's going to see this? Who's going to benefit from it actually being in some of these places? So my news is about a company called Critical Incident Videos, LLC. So they've been the subject of a new article in the San Jose Mercury News. Uh, And what's interesting about this, they're a company that specializes in editing and producing and working with law enforcement agencies uh, to make available body camera videos. Now, this is, we've talked about Lexapol in the past, the company that writes the use of force policies for something like 3,000 law enforcement agencies across the country. They're making a lot of money writing these policies for 95% of California's law enforcement agencies. Now, what this article does that's interesting is that it offers a lens into another area of this broader industry, which is now that in California, law enforcement agencies are required to release body camera footage uh, within 45 days uh, based on new legislation that's been passed. There's a whole business now with cities that are contracting with this company to produce that footage and make it available. And just like in the context of Lexapol, where they write those policies in ways that allow the police to use chokeholds and a whole variety of tactics that are harmful to people. In the body camera space, this company is editing and cutting the footage in ways that is designed to sort of exonerate law enforcement. So you may have seen law enforcement agencies that do a big press conference. We have the police chief. It's a high-profile incident of police violence, and they put out a video. I remember uh, with Stephon Clark, when the police murdered Stephon Clark in Sacramento, um, they had a big press conference. They put out a video, and the video wasn't like an impartial, unbiased, we're just going to put the footage that exists out there. It was like a very different exercise. They walked you through, first of all, they they framed what you were about to see before you even saw the footage. Then they went frame by frame, zooming into particular things. So they would zoom into the cell phone that he was carrying and be like, well, we don't know if the police thought that was a gun, but they made it look really menacing. The footage was really grainy. So you didn't have the clarity to distinguish the two. And that was a choice because they actually have control over the degree of the resolution of the footage. Um, so there, each step of it seemed like it was to construct a narrative whereby you would believe that the officer might have thought there was a gun, even though the, Stephon Clark was carrying a cell phone. And it turns out like that's not a coincidence. It's like an isolated incident. There's a whole business. There's a whole industry. There are companies like Critical Incident uh, Videos, LLC, that literally do this. They make a lot of money contracting with cities across the country to produce this video, to cut the video in certain ways, uh, to make it available in ways that often seek to exonerate the police um, with the videos that you know, cities paid a lot of money to buy these body cameras to get that video 
in the hope that it would provide some lens of transparency and accountability for police violence. And it seems like uh, in the context of capitalism uh, that we're seeing companies exploit that and actually do very much the opposite with it. I honestly don't think I can be shocked. I'm like, you know, I've seen it. And then I saw this. It was like, well... We're being out-organized and outflanked in such an incredible way. You're like, they, of course, there's like a PR firm that this is all they do is like fudge the narrative around potty cameras. You're like, that is, and it's, and the best part about it to me was that it is run by a former newscaster. You're like, yes, of course. And I'm sure that that person is a gazillionaire now. I'm sure that person consults on a whole host of cases that like don't necessarily hit the news, don't become big, but like there's a formula for how, you, how we do this. And you know, the, one of the worst parts about it is that there's no organized response on our side, right? That, that we just, I mean, I, this is the first time I've ever heard of this is when you put it in a thing for this to be the news, but trying to think through how do you even defend against this where we don't have the unredacted body, like you're fighting for the unredacted body camera footage. You're fighting to get the police reports and da 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 they have everything at their disposal. So by the time you even call out the lie, it's four weeks after the, you know, like it's so far gone. The police have killed almost 500 people so far this year. And most people know three names, right? It's just, is like a, this made me both incredibly sad. It made me think about if this is happening in this one part of the country, it's probably happening in most of the other big cities. Like there's probably a consultant or like some firm that specializes in this uh, that helps people regionally. And I just didn't think I could be shocked anymore. And I was like, well, you got me. This was uh, just wild. Like this Lexapol, a part of me thinks that there's like the super villains meeting happens once a month where they all come together and are like, hey, we need to plan for this. And somebody funds it because it's just so organized. Uh, my news is about uh, the prison industrial complex. So when we talk about privatization of prisons and private prisons, normally people talk about private prisons. Again, less than 8% of prisons are privatized. Uh, we've said repeatedly that uh, the privatization of services in prisons is actually like the biggest thing. Uh, but then I came across this article that talked about how there's a push to eliminate physical mail from prisons, starting with the federal prisons. And as you can imagine, uh, Trump uh, was one of the pioneers of this. So there is a company uh, that is called Smart Communications, and they make a product called MailGuard. And what MailGuard does is that MailGuard takes the physical mail, scans it, and then puts it on a tablet. So if you're incarcerated, you will not get physical mail anymore. You will get the mail to read through a tablet. This was piloted during the Trump era. People flipped out. But as you know, you know Trump was doing his thing. It wasn't listening to anybody. And people expected that the Biden administration would roll it back. And to everybody's surprise, they have signaled that they are actually trying to expand MailGuard into more places. Now, luckily, MailGuard is not really picking up at the local level. So the article talks about some places that, like one or two jails that have picked it up, but, uh, but in general, not being picked up. But the federal government seems to have a commitment to this. Now, the purpose of MailGuard was supposedly to get rid of drugs. Like, that was like the thing. But it looks like it didn't even do that. So according to state data, drugs are still entering state facilities at the same pace, whether through faked legal mail. So mail guard doesn't apply to like legal mail, right? So like court summons and stuff like that. Or through ding, 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 the corrections officers, which is how most of the contraband gets into prisons and jails anyway. And the other thing they know is that after implementing mail guard, the average number of drug tests coming back positive 
from September 2019 to August 2020 hovered around 1%, with the exception of two months with zero positive drug tests. And it's like, this data looks very similar to the data that was there before Mail Guard came in to play. So there's some places like Pennsylvania that they have a contract up in the air. And obviously the federal government, we're trying to press on them to end this. But the reason this matters is a couple reasons. One is... Uh, people should be able to touch their mail. If you get a birthday card from your kid, you should be able to touch it. You should be able to read a letter. You should be able to keep it in your cell. Like just emotionally, uh, you should have a connection to the outside world as we deal with the end of mass incarceration. The second though, and what the company will say is that mail guard's free, right? It's supposed to like make prisons more secure, cut down on contraband. Here's the thing is that it is not really free in design because somebody has to pay for the tablets and they'll say the tablets are free. And you're like, okay, cool. But remember, every time you download a song, it's a cost. Every time, you know, there's somebody who's incarcerated that I talk to regularly and support. Every time I send him a letter, I have to buy an electronic stamp. This is the only place in the world where you have to buy stamps to send emails. That's wild. So yeah, the tablet is technically free, but everything you do on the tablet is not free. And when you make the mail, something as basic as the mail go through this, you essentially are guaranteeing that there will always be tablets, that the government will essentially ha- eventually have to eat the cost for storage or the internet or something with regard to the tablet. And then the user will be responsible for the cost of using it. I honestly had no clue. I didn't know there was a push to transition out of physical mail. I knew that people were transitioning away from visits in lieu of uh, video calls, which is its own problem. But I didn't know the end of physical mail was even a plan. On the one hand, it's like, you know, things are digitizing. Things are like, I get that we're trying to move more things to be digital. That sort of makes sense. But when you see how this is actually being implemented in terms of imposing new layers of surveillance, removing the ability of people to connect in a physical way uh, that, that you mentioned, DeRay, like just having a physical letter, a physical embodiment and a connection to the person or, or persons that you care about on the outside is really important. Um, and seeing the exploitation of what happens when you digitize that information in terms of everybody getting charged you know, for every single message they send, um, for everything that they look at online, um, like the system doesn't make sense. And you know, I, I've, I've thought for a long time that one thing that would make sense, I mean, in addition to continue to do physical messages, physical mail, would be to to give people access to the internet, to give people access to you know a tablet or an iPhone or some connected device, to have access to the outside world, to have access and to break down some of these barriers that continue to exist while they exist in the physical space, to like have some sort of connection digitally to people in the outside world. But then you see on how that is actually implemented in practice, and it's very different, right? The way in which the prison industrial complex exploits that. And yes, you could have a tablet. And yes, the tablet is technically free, but everything you do on the tablet is going to cost you more money than you have. It's going to cost your family members money. It's going to cost all of this money to send a basic message and to stay connected. And we know that staying connected is important to maintaining your sanity, to maintaining um, your state of mind, to not uh, reoffending, to doing all of the things, to reintegrating when you get out of, of prison. And yet, and still, that is something that they're creating financial barriers to doing um, and cutting off the existing avenues to stay connected that were physical. So, I mean, I, I, I still think that people need access to, like, broader access in, in the context of incarceration uh, to information that is, that is communicated digitally to the internet, et cetera, without paying a lot of money. But they definitely shouldn't cut off 
your physical access to the world. Obviously, that is like more meaningful, more tangible, that matters. Um, and especially when we talk about visitation and like being able to physically see the people that you care about in your life, like that is extremely important. And if you can't even do that, then like even being able to touch a letter from them, they're trying to cut that off too. So there's something really sort of cruel about the way in which they're implementing this as well. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's the human piece of this, right? Which we we don't dig into enough. Y'all, like... <laughs> These folks need their physical mail. They need pictures. They need like, like my cousin was incarcerated. I think it was probably, it's gotta be 15 years ago. I have every letter she sent me, every single letter still to this day. And those are really, really, really important to me, right? And so when you think about the families of incarcerated people and of incarcerated, like it's, these are human beings who are still living their lives. You're not dead in prison. You still have responsibilities to your family members, to the community that you're building inside. So I just, it's just wild to me that anyone thinks it's appropriate to take away somebody's physical manifestation of love, joy, support, happiness, fulfill all of those things, right? And so I think the other great part of this piece too, it, it was a quote from Ebony Underwood and I love Ebony Underwood and have the honor of working with Ebony but she runs an organization called We Got Us Now. You should know the organization. It's a, a nonprofit that is run by and serves young adults and children of incarcerated folks. Um, and so one of the things that Ebony said is she's like, there's nothing like getting a birthday card you can touch and hold to see handwriting you may never have seen before. And for Ebony, you know, she also talks about in this piece how her, you know, her dad is her dad and her dad was incarcerated for 30 years. He got out um, just in January because of compassionate release, but her, her dad was her dad and not being able for him to receive things from his children, like to not have had that over the course of 30 years, that's a huge, it's a huge, was a huge, would have been a huge deal to them. So, yeah. So I think, yeah, we got to keep eyes on this and keep the pressure on this administration because this things like this, there's just not as much of a light on them, obviously. And so we have to make sure that folks are, aware and organizing so that these type of contracts don't continue to get through. It also strikes me as a really sneaky expansion of the surveillance state because you got to believe that in a year it'll be searchable. Like they will be able to search all the mail. They will do handwriting analysis. We'll see that introduced in court. We knew that it was her handwriting because we saw it like you know that's coming. They won't say that up front. Just like it makes you think of the Uber Lyft stuff where the Uber Lyft prices were real low for the first couple of years. Now to take an Uber, it's $12,000. You know, they're not going to lead off with that. But all the search will mail. That'll be a thing in the name of public safety. And you're like, no, that's not it. And by the way, who is mailing? Like, are people really mailing bags of cocaine through the U.S. Postal Service to jails? I don't believe it. I don't. Well, and that's the thing. And that's the thing that they said. It, there's no data that showed there was a decrease in the suicides that whatever state was talking about. Like, there's just, it's no rhyme or reason. There's no rhyme or reason. But who is, but, but are people really mailing drugs? Like, I just don't even, <clears throat> no black, I don't know black people who are mailing cocaine over the U.S. Postal Service <laughs> not, to the prison. Not with their address on it, that's for sure. No, right, definitely <laughs> Definitely not with their dress on it. But like, I don't even believe that story. I'm like, "Mm, this sounds like a lie on the surface. My news this week comes from the Washington Post. And it's a pretty timely article as we wrap up the first national celebration of Juneteenth as a federal holiday. There are a group of lawmakers in Congress who are actually 
um, working on a constitutional amendment that would remove the punishment clause of the 13th Amendment. Now, as you probably know, the 13th Amendment outlaws slavery in the United States, quote unquote, except as a punishment for a crime. And this proposal, led by a number of Democrats in Congress, aims to eliminate forced prison labor, which many view as the continuation of slavery's uh, legacy of injustice. In fact, some argue that the Biden administration's priorities around voting access, changes to policing, um, are necessary but not sufficient, and that eliminating forced prison labor is necessary to address racism and inequality in our country. Now, many of you know the history of forced prison labor and the 13th Amendment after watching Ava DuVernay's 2016 documentary, 13th, where she takes pains to really tell the story of the fact that just days after the official nationwide abolition of slavery in December 1865, Southern states moved pretty quickly to create hundreds of laws targeting black people for enslavement through the criminal justice system. Um, these became known as black codes. They ultimately turned into Jim Crow laws. And these laws prohibited blacks from selling certain foods, from gathering on corners, from gathering in a disorderly way, from carrying a pistol, um, from staying out too late, and all kinds of other malarkey. Um, in fact, these laws allowed white people to take black children into years of servitude, claiming that they could take care of them better than their own parents. And so you had... Um, many plantations that actually expanded even after the 13th Amendment's ratification. My colleague Sam uh, did a post about how many plantations actually turned directly into prisons. The same name that they were as a plantation is now the name that they uh, are as a prison. A Supreme Virginia Supreme Court justice in 1871 said a prisoner is a slave of the state. So... This forced prison labor, which extends into our country's history today, and as you know, disproportionately affects people of color, poor people, um, black people, there are a bunch of folks who are advocating for removing this punishment clause. And so there are a number of states, red and blue, both, who've recently removed the punishment clause from their state constitutions. Colorado was the first to repeal it in 2018, and other states are following. And so there is a movement, there's a wave of folks who believe that, you know, if we're going to do Juneteenth, then we ought to go all the way and really abolish all of slavery's long-standing tentacles that still affect the work that we do today, the way we treat people today. So happy Juneteenth, and let's abolish forced prison labor. Don't go anywhere. More politics the people is coming. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened, but soon a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondery's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. 
Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states and Canada where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Now, what's the first thing that you'd do if you had a ton of extra time in a day? Maybe I'd take a nap, go for a run, talk to some friends. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But the question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? Now, the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and to make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you, help you process the world around you, help you think through the most important things, how you spend your time, where you spend your energy, especially your emotional energy. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot people. Miles Johnson is a writer and an artist that I've been following for a number of years. I remember first coming across him on Twitter and then with his incredible New York Times op-ed about Beyonce not winning the Grammy. Miles covers stories in pop culture, politics, black feminism, queer theory, and so much more. And today we talk about America's relationship with celebrities, black queer representation, and who currently has power in the media. I love Miles' voice. You will too. Here we go. Miles Johnson, the one and only. Thanks so much for joining us today on Pod Save the People. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to talk to you um, publicly. <laughs> <laughs> so we first met because of some of your writing online. And I was like, I think he has such an interesting perspective. You went on to write at so many places. You wrote one of those iconic pieces about Beyonce and the Grammys. How did you become a writer? Like, what was that journey for you? Essentially, I'm an artist, right? And I always wanted to create things. But I came from a background that was you know, I had a single mother. She was poor. She was also marginalized again because she was a lesbian. So I think that the thing that was the most low cost for me to create something was writing, you know? And I think that's how come people think that I have such, like, interesting perspectives is because I kind of think about the world as an artist and try to make sense of things and connect things that aren't always necessarily connected. And I was doing actually writing just because that was the thing that I had. I did have a cheap Acer laptop <laughs> and, um, and I had a Wi-Fi connection and that felt like the thing I had most accessibility to. That was kind of the birth of it. And then, you know, more resources, more money, the more things I was able to make and be a part of. And the more people who knew me, the more opportunities I got to be a part of things that were, um, you know, beyond the pen and paper too. Boom, I wanted to bring you on so we could talk about some things in culture that we just haven't talked about on the pod before and uh, and that we certainly haven't had an expert on. One of those topics is Lil Nas X. So there's been a lot of conversation about um, Call Me By Your Name, the latest song. There's been a lot of conversation about the way that Lil Nas X is presented in the public and that he presents himself uh, as a gay black man. We obviously know his record with 
the initial song that made us all love him, Old Town Road. Uh, how do you think about the presence or the role of Lil Nas X in this moment? <laughs> I think it's simultaneously really, really exciting and exhilarating Lil Nas X in this moment and really boring when you know the actual bend of pop culture history. I think what's interesting is the vehicle that's doing it, right? So Lil Nas X is black, he's gay, and he's a dark-skinned black man. I think that even when I was a little kid and watching CeeLo and watching Andre 3000, watching... Um, and even like Rick James, it's something subversive when a dark-skinned black man decides to do things that fails uh, heteropatriarchal dynamics and structures. So meaning that when a dark-skinned black man does something that's quote-unquote act gay. <laughs> and, but I think the thing that's boring about it is he's doing what Madonna did. <laughs> and not to say that he's being reductive, but we've always had pop stars, pop culture icons use religious symbolism in order to assert both their independence, um, their agency, and also their sexual freedom. But now the body that's doing it is different, but the body that's doing it is also representative of the time that we're in. We're in this queer moment. We're in the moment where trans folks, queer folks, gay folks, we're all kind of being pushed to the front and seeing what we do when the spotlight's on us, whereas Madonna was, I wouldn't say that she was a part of the wave of feminism necessarily, but she was riding that wave of feminism where she was able to say, well, I'm a woman and I have agency over my sexuality. And I'm going to say what I want to say. These different patriarchal norms have um, oppressed me and I'm going to use the imagery that I create in order to push against that or to create something new. Little Nas X is doing the same exact formula, you know, and I think maybe... If Lady Gaga was the last death rattle of that subversive blonde pop star, then Little Nas X is kind of seeming like the new dawn of something new. And I think that's what's exciting about it. But um, the reaction is like out of a storybook, you know? If you, look, if you look at controversial moments in pop culture, the pop star does something controversial, and then, you know, some people embrace it. And then 20 years later, it's seen as almost demure and shy based off of what's then going to be going on in 20 years because things must get more provocative. Things must get more um, titillating. So that's kind of the, the overview of how I see it. It's an interesting moment. But then also when you know a little bit about pop culture history, it's like, oh, this, we've done this before. We've been here before. Do you think that is the same too with Lil Nas X sort of saying like, you know, I'm making art, I'm making music. I'm not necessarily here to be people's role model. If that is what people get out of it, cool, but that's not like what I wake up to do. Is that in the same vein or does that feel new or different to you? No, that's the Britney Spears line. That's I, I, I just could list so many pop stars that have said that line where basically they're saying, I'm not the babysitter of your children. I'm not the role model to your children. Don't use me as a surrogate babysitter or role model. My opinion on that is that, you know, they're right. They shouldn't be the babysitter to other people's children. But I do think when you are a celebrity and you're doing something as universal as making music, you're inherently taking a role model stance. And I do think there's something healthy about showing a black gay man beheading Lucifer as a role model. I think there's actually something really um, empowering about that. Now, maybe the symbolism and the message is not necessarily appropriate for kids of all ages, but I think that when those kids become of age and see that maybe the same person who made Old Town Row also made this, and when those kids come to a certain level of maturity and consciousness, I think that'll, that will be okay. I think that you will feel empowered by that in the same way, because 
all things pop culture must go back to um, Beyonce. Um, I think that it's the same way that seeing Beyonce be liberated in her sexuality as she was a mother, as she was coming into a feminist consciousness. I think maybe every single song and every single moment of that era wasn't necessarily appropriate for kids. But I think that when those kids become a certain age, they'll actually appreciate what they saw and, and, and what she did and what she created. It's a little bit dishonest to say you're not a role model because you just that's just what that role is, <laughs> you know? But I do think that you're not a babysitter, meaning you don't have to muffle your own um, maturity and your own self-expression in order to be appropriate for children. Boom. And, and how do you think about our relationship to celebrity? I ask because in some ways it felt like over the pandemic, we were celebrity out. I was for sure. It was like, you know, we couldn't leave our homes. Our homes are tiny. We're in tight spaces. And then you saw celebrities complaining about being trapped at their 20-room estate. And you're like, I don't really know if this is if we're in the same boat here. (laughs) And it also felt like there were some celebrities where, you know, you used to see them every often. And now it was like, I see you every 12 seconds. Like, this is, I don't know, that felt more indifferent. But do you think our relationship to celebrity is changing? Is this cyclical, too? It's just sort of the same old, same old? Is the internet doing something new? I don't know. I wanted to know what, what your thought was about that. I think there's two things when it comes to, um, I, I, I like the separation. I can't quite remember who said it, but I like the separation that somebody did when it comes to what is being an artist and what's being a celebrity and what's being an artist who's famous versus what's being a celebrity, right? And I think celebrities really, really focus on scale. They focus on getting more people to like them. You know, well, you got, got black folks to like you because you collaborated with the baby. Now you have to get, you know, this audience to like you and this audience to like you and this audience to like you and scale, 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 because you want that picture in your documentary where you're taking up arena. That's kind of like a celebrity idea about it. Um, and I think that in this moment, with the fact that the Internet's coming, we're seeing a lot of celebrities trying to be their own type of, I guess island, I would call it, or like their own type of kind of cult of personality nation. Um, you're not just buying the products or the artistic product that they're creating, but you're also buying the skin care that they use. Or you're also buying um, the children's books. You're also buying um, the clothes. You're also um, maybe even creating their own online group chats and communities and hashtags. So now you're really investing in those things. And that's exhausting. And most people just simply are not, no matter how fantastic your art is, no matter how great the film is or how great the performance is, most people are just not that interesting to create entire communities around them, specifically when a lot of celebrities negotiated a lot of their own uniqueness in order to become celebrities, meaning a lot of celebrities, in order to be mainstream celebrities, have to wash themselves in certain ways and have to muffle themselves in certain ways that actually, when you put them up close, you actually look very similar to other people, which is not enticing. It's really exhausting for the consumer. Now, there are a lot of exceptions to that rule that I will name, you know, some of the people I won't name, but, you know, I think Rihanna uh, is like a really unique artist, a unique person. So her stuff, <laughs> her her nation is interesting and you want to visit that. You want to become a citizen of that. Um, even Solange, um, albeit she's niche, it's really interesting. You want to know about it. You're not getting it everywhere else. But a lot of these celebrities are doing the same thing and it's exhausting for the consumer. How many restaurants do you really need selling you, you know, French fries? You know, like it's just, it's just not, <laughs> it's just not that exciting. And it is exhausting specifically during um, last year where we weren't able to leave the house and our escape was the phone and was celebrity culture, you know, which I hope on a spiritual level 
makes people more grateful when, you know, when you leave the house now, <laughs> you know, that you're like, oh, wait, I see how bad it could be. And now I appreciate the fact that um, my only form of escape is not media and celebrities and in the world making that they do. That's not as imaginative um, as it could be. Does that hold, though, for the TikTokers and the Snapchatters that like it seems like there is enough to create a whole community around them? My challenge to that is we will have to see in 10 years Vine is a good example of that. Um, how many people survived after Vine left? How many people who are on Twitter or Instagram who might have been some of the landmark people that made those sites sexy, made those sites interesting? A lot of those people are no longer here. You know, a lot of those people are still working to have ownership over those things or simply they just got phased out for something younger and more exciting. It's not simply about what you're able to create in the now or what you're able to create in the next two to three years and what you're able to do then and selling t-shirts and, and going viral now. It's about can, will this last in the 10 years and the 20 years, you know, they're trying to, and somehow for the modern day, recreate the Elizabeth Taylor model where it's like, oh, once I'm done with film, I could do perfume and I could also do activism in this place and stuff like that. So I'm kind of this thing that exists, the, the, the household name. I'm this nebulous thing that exists in your home, no matter if I'm creating, you know, the work that you knew me for or not. That's not necessarily being recreated all the time with the people who are getting really popular on TikTok. And it's visible because it's not always communicating in uh, live events. It's not always communicating in products that, uh, like, you know, actual films. A lot of people who are really funny and have a lot of engagement on TikTok and on Instagram and all these different platforms find it really hard to um, communicate that into films and television shows that they get. You have to kind of keep on recreating that stardom on TikTok at a really fast pace and more people than not kind of get phased out, you know, and that's the truth of that. <laughs> that's that on that. <laughs> um, did you see, that's what you, that's definitely what you gave. That's that on that. So Naomi Osaka is like, I'm not doing press at these events that, you know, I've done it. People ask the same question. My mental health also is important. And I'll just take the fine. It feels like there's like something happening with a younger group of stars that are pushing back on right. these models that like everybody's done for a long time. And this is just the way you do it. What was your read of Osaka's comment? You have a group of people. And this is my generation. I was born in 91. I feel like people who kind of still remember that bubblegum pop era and that kind of fascination with um, pop culture era. So you have a group of people that were disillusioned and noticed, specifically when social media happens, they notice that their own power noticed that I have the power. You need me in order to be successful. You need me in order to make the headlines. You need me to see the monster. When you are talented and you do have a a group of people that are interested in your work or when you are the artist or when you are that excellent sports player, whatever the case might be, you don't have to do certain things. You don't have to participate in certain things that felt like um, non-negotiables to another era because you now are plugged into your fan base. You are now plugged into talking directly to the people who would, you know, keep you alive or who would, you know, when you want to go and do something with Nike or you want to do something on your own, maybe, you know, from the ground up, you can actually plug into that fan base and you don't need to be a part of that machine that really, really um, thrives off of cannibalizing people's mental health, you know? And, and I think that right now that's just a moment that is indicative of a bigger moment where people are kind of realizing, wait, you need me way more than I need you. And if I decide to collaborate with you, it must be worth my while. And if not, then I'll pay that fine. If it's $20,000, if it's, you know, less engagement, whatever the, the, the quote unquote fine is, I'm willing to do it because 
it's not worth it. It's just simply not worth it. And I think, again, um, seeing how companies interact with social media and how much companies kind of farm social media and farm people um, who like come normal everyday people who go viral or people who have these niche platforms um, has done something to our psyche to realize, wait, people who do that (laughs) don't, don't not need those people. You know, people don't do those type of things if the content is inconsequential or those people are inconsequential. So it kind of makes us think like, wait, maybe we're the people who control fame and celebrity and control our narratives way more than these, these people are. And I don't have to do whatever it is. They say I must do just because they're part of this like legacy or it's because it's part of this like bigger, like Hollywood pattern or habit. It is really cool to see people opt out of feeding the beast uh, because they can talk directly to people, as you said. Now, what's your read of what people generally call the movement right now? So you've seen, you know, you've been around Odyssey since the first set of protests in 2014 and Freddie Gray, Sandra Bland, Walter Scott, George Floyd. People talk about 2020 as like a reckoning year and, you know, not, that's not how I think about it, but that is the language people use. How would you describe this arc and where are we? I hope that that exhale was audible because I think that's collectively where we are. Like an exhausted exhale. I think a lot of people are really tired. And I think that from what I can tell and what I, and what I can feel is that people deconstructing things, pushing against things is exhausting. It's not a long game plan. Even our most heroic people who have pushed um, against things have um, given up their mental and physical health in order to do it. It's not a lifetime game plan. And I think what I'm seeing um, as a community is that we're really exhausted and we're really looking to um, generate things, to create things, to produce things, and um, looking for people, communities that are centering generating things, centering like the alternative. I haven't actually seen as many people in my life than I do today as that are really interested in what does the new world look like? What does justice alternative look like? What does a world without insert whatever oppressive force that you can think of. What does that actually look like? What does it feel like? What does it smell like? How do we treat each other? What kind of food do we eat there? How do we treat the, um, you know, the, 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 the earth there? Really interested in the generating of it. How do we employ it? How do we start it now? How do we not just theorize about it? How do we not just text things into the social media ether about it? How do we actively do it? Because not only is that productive, that's also a life-giving practice. When you give life to things, you kind of feel alive. And I think when you try to destroy things and kill things, it exhausts you. And I think you're seeing kind of like a natural, I think we're seeing, excuse me, a natural um, kind of state where we're exhausted. And it's cyclical. And I'm noticing a lot of things like the nap ministry and there's countless other things that kind of feel like they're centering on rest and generating new ideas rather than pushing against or uh, deconstructing other ideas. And I think that um, as a collective mind, <laughs> we're just exhausted and we, and we all feel like we need a nap and we all need something to feel optimistic about and feel like we're creating something instead of just tearing things down and tearing things down because there's truly endless things to tear down in this system. And it's just not sustainable to always focus on, on that half of solely deconstructing things. Well, we can see your friend of the pod. Can't wait to have you back. And uh, thank you so much for joining us today. Of course. Have a good one, Dwight. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Don't go anywhere. There's more to come. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers. But you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader. 
Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. Hey, it's me, your barista. You know how you come in almost every day for our cold foam coffee? Well, now there's an easy way to foam at home with new International Delight Cold Foam Creamer. And it's foaming delicious. New International Delight Cold Foam Creamer. Now in stores. It's foaming delicious. And now my conversation with Mario Rosser. He's running to be on the New York City Council representing Harlem, District 9. I met him out. We had a good conversation. And I wanted to share that conversation with you so that you can hear about all the incredible young people running for office across the country. And one of them is Mario Rosser. Here we go. Mario, thanks so much for joining us today on Party of the People. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Now, uh, first question is why the New York City Council why now? Like, what led you to this uh, idea of running for for city council, running for public office? Why that role? Why now? It's the impact. At the end of the day, that's what drives everything that I do, to make an impact in the way that we invest in our young people in our community, to make an impact in prioritizing resources for a community that has suffered from disinvestment and suffered from the inequity. And right now, we have an opportunity to actually prioritize Harlem in a way uh, that is possible because of what we've done over the past year in terms of recognizing across a wide variety of types of people that live in the city that we just can't rebuild New York City and go back to what we were doing before. And so right now there is a real opportunity for us to capitalize and translate that consensus into real impact and budget priorities for our community. For me personally, I've spent my life uh, focusing on making sure that we invest in our young people who are first-generation college students, making sure that we help Black people have access to economic opportunities and wealth creation, uh, and helping uh, entrepreneurs grow. These are the things that I focus my career on, and I view being in office, and particularly in city council, as a specific way to make an impact that's larger. And so for me, that's what drives everything that I do. And what are you hearing when you are out in Harlem talking to potential voters? What, what are the issues that are top of mind from them? Number one, in Harlem, people have real insecurity about even being able to stay in their homes. When we talk about the eviction moratorium, Harlem is ground zero for what it looks like when that ends and what that could further mean in terms of displacement of black people in Harlem. And so by far, that is the number one issue in Harlem, people literally are concerned about even being able to be in Harlem. If people can't live in Harlem, then when we're talking about youth programs or we're talking about other things in the neighborhood, to a certain extent, it doesn't even matter because people are going to be, we're going to have to talk about those issues in another neighborhood where Harlemites are going to be living because they won't be living in Harlem if we're not able to keep Harlemites in Harlem. And so I can't emphasize enough how basic and how fundamental uh, that issue is for whoever represents the neighborhood, whether it be on city council, whether it be at other levels of representative government. Right now, the the number two and number three issues, which are really two sides of the same coin, are getting young people, particularly kids who are between that age of 13 and 18, real opportunities and things to do with their time. 
if people don't name that as the number two issue, they'll say the number two issue is being able to walk outside and, and being comfortable that you're going to physically be okay. When we talk about the realities of, of what we're dealing with in Harlem, we're talking about a neighborhood that has been over-policed in a neighborhood that has predictably seen what happens when poverty rates go up and an economic crash happens in addition to the uptick in crime that we typically see in summers. And grandmothers that I talk to every day are seeing young people, teenagers being shot outside of their building. And so Harlem is where these things are actually happening and people are dealing with real life situations. And, and one thing that I have attempted to do is not just recognize and give voice to the frustration and pain that people feel due to the death in our community, whether it be from police or whether it be from others in our community, but talk about what is the path forward for us to create a neighborhood where policing and those approaches don't need to be the center of the conversation around public safety. It's housing, it's youth, and it's safety in Harlem. What do you say about the safety conversation? As you know, uh, the past year has been a conversation about moving away from police. There are still people in community who either want more police or at least want the same amount of police. What is your stance? We need to get to the point soon and quickly where policing doesn't have to be the center of the conversation around public safety. I speak literally every single day with grandmothers and aunts and young mothers and a lot of folks who will look at me in the eye and, and literally, and we're talking about black people in our community who say, hey, Mario, I want you to put more police in our community after we spent all year marching. And what I've tried to do in my campaign, and, and I've been pretty clear about my position that we must cut the police budget. I'm on record saying that we need to cut it by at least $1 billion. I stand with that. And what I think we've been able to do and what we need to do is be able to leave room in communication so that we can actually get these things done by meeting our community members where they're at. Because when grandma tells me she wants more police, what really is grandma saying she wants a neighborhood that's safe and she is comfortable walking outside. And at the end of the day, it's clear that that's not what policing has gotten us in the past. We see neighborhoods where people have incredible economic opportunities and there's a low unemployment rate and there's high entrepreneurship rates. People aren't just talking about the police. Uh, and so that's my vision for Harlem, where we're making the investments right now and getting compassionate outreach to people who might be houseless in our community and living on the streets and getting them into supportive housing and getting them the mental health services that are actually going to be effective. We cannot just throw police at this issue and expect this to solve our problems in our community. When we're talking about young people who are pulling triggers, none of this is hypothetical for me because this is what I grew up with. You cannot throw police at that and solve that. And so I think what, what we've been able to do in our conversations with Everyone in our community is really communicate with everyone where they're at, while also not disregarding the very valid things that people are literally seeing uh, on a day-to-day basis happen to their daughters, their sons, uh, their grandsons, some of whom are not with us anymore, who still should be with us. That's what I support, and that's what we've been talking about. And thus far, I think people respect it um, because they know it's coming from an authentic place. And what about COVID? You know, you've had people in your life impacted by COVID. What do you think the recovery plan is, especially knowing that in cities like New York, it was communities of color that were hit hardest, that got the least amount of resources, got the least amount of care. What comes next? Targeted recovery funds to specifically the issues we're dealing with in our community. There's so much talk about an economic recovery this, an economic recovery that. (laughs) Our Black community, the whole community has seen 
many so-called economic recoveries. And I call it so-called because many recovery packages never actually recovered our community and never did anything meaningful. And so instead of talking about an economic recovery, what we need is a community recovery. And for me, that means specifically targeting recovery dollars to our youth centers in Harlem so that when we're talking about creating a safer neighborhood where kids just aren't on the streets idle, but they have recreation centers and mentorship programs and entrepreneurial development programs where they can go in and have a space where they can actually grow and develop their ideas because they're doing this already without really any material resources. So if we're able to envision this recovery as being one of community care, I think that is what we can look back upon in 2025 and say, you know what, we made the right investments and we directed the funds in the right way in Harlem. Beyond that, to me, it is incumbent on us as a city to ensure that as we reboot the economy, we as a city council, whoever is elected as mayor, holds companies that are operating in this city far more accountable to actually hiring the people who have stayed in Harlem who haven't left the city during this pandemic. I mean, you know, I've spent a lot of my career working within the tech sector. I've worked at LinkedIn as a partnerships manager. Obviously, a lot of people know about LinkedIn as a company where you're able to go and find economic opportunity. What we need to do is make sure that as companies like LinkedIn that have office spaces in, in New York and Google's and others have people return to the office, let's make sure that we're getting the black folks and Latin folks who have been in New York into these roles that increasingly tech companies are requiring you not to even have a college degree for, but you can just go to a six week accelerator program. And all of a sudden you're doing entry level SQL work. And so these are actual things that need to be encompassed in the recovery that is going to create long-term sustainable opportunity for our community. And, and to me, that's what it looks like. I would be remiss not to say that we need to make sure that we're not cutting funding to our public hospitals. In Harlem specifically, we have an anchor institution at Harlem Hospital that has absolutely been ravaged from a budget perspective over years. Uh, it's underfunded. The staff are overworked. You can talk to folks at places at institutions such as the New York State Nurses Alliance, and they talk about uh, how nurses are in unsafe conditions because hospitals are trying to cut costs in order to basically make more money. And they're not putting enough nurses to be able to take care of the people. From a long-term health perspective, we need to make sure that uh, we are getting our community the resources that we are doing so that physically we are taken care of. And so all across the board, it is about a community recovery, not just an economic recovery to get back to normal, but it is really getting resources to our community in specific ways that people are voicing. But what do you think will be some of the uh, challenges on the council? Like, it's a big council. What do you anticipate to be some of the challenges? Some of the, the challenges will naturally revolve around the negotiations for the budget. The new council will take office in January of 2022 and immediately uh, go into budget negotiations a year after coming out of COVID. And I think there is always that tendency to want to return to normal just do things as they have been done. And so I think that there will be a predictable tension um, between folks who, who really want to make sure that we rebuild the city in a way that is recognizing we haven't been prioritizing our budget in a way that solves problems 
and reduces poverty and really creates sustainable safety and those who just kind of want to go back to business as usual. And I, I think that that is going to be probably one of the defining factors. More than anything, what I've seen is that I think we can find common ground as long as we meet people where they are as folks who are representing our communities, spend as much time actually on the ground speaking to people in real authentic ways. And I think through that, we can see clearly what the common ground is across New York City. But I, if, to be honest, I think that that is going to be what the natural tension is. Now, uh, I wanted to double back around healthcare. You talked about the Anchor Hospital. Uh, I think about what it means that we have an aging population. One of the things that you know, you obviously know Harlem. There's a solid community of older people who have, they live their life here. They have raised families here. Um, and the city has not always taken care of them. What can we do about that? So number one, we have to make sure that older people can stay in Harlem. I was at a building last week that opened in 1967. It's called Esplanade and met a person who is 102 years old. They didn't look like it. And uh, I opened the door and I, I said, you know, sir, my name is Mario. I'm running for city council. Just wanted to come by and introduce myself and really hear what's important to you. And number one, to be honest, a 102-year-old told me it was his kids and grandkids that he's concerned about being able to even live in Esplanade and himself. Many buildings in Harlem that were legacy, solid, middle-class anchor buildings for middle-class Black folks and folks who are making a, a lot less than that are undergoing uh, transitions and tax structures where senior citizens are at risk of not even being able to stay in apartments that they've lived in for 40 50 years. And so we need to make sure that we are providing stability so that seniors can age in place. We're easing the pathway for seniors to be able to move into buildings that have elevator access because it's a damn shame we're asking seniors to walk up six flights of stairs at 89 years old uh, when we could get them over into some buildings that are a bit more accessible. Uh, to speak about accessibility, that is also an issue. If you talk to seniors in the neighborhood, it will talk about being able to get on buses so that they can go see their friends at a senior citizen down the street. And the buses are making local stops. So the issues the city council deal with are so specific in terms of literally what people are dealing with on an everyday basis and the steps that they're taking throughout the neighborhood. People might be surprised in what I speak about with regard to helping seniors. But if you really talk to seniors in the neighborhood, at least on the local level, uh, right here in the neighborhood, those are the things that they're concerned about. Uh, making sure they can stay in their homes, making sure that spaces and amenities are accessible. And yeah, a lot of seniors are going to talk about making sure that they can walk outside and have complete security in being able to go outside, especially after coming off a year where they, so many of them have been locked inside. Uh, they're dealing with loneliness just like everybody else is, and they want to get outside and be comfortable with that. And so those are things I think we need to do for seniors, and that's what they're telling me. Cool. Well, we consider you a friend of the pod and can't wait to have you back. Hey, DeRay, I, I just want to say thank you for the opportunity to come on. I'm honestly uh, humbled to be on your platform. You have been a champion for our people in ways that I don't even think are fully appreciated. And so I know you're going to go down as one of the greats. And it is an honor, you know, to be on here with you and for you to give me the opportunity to share uh, our vision for Harlem. And I look forward to working with you and everything that you're going to be accomplishing uh, moving forward. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning in to Pod Save the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcast, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. 
and we'll see you next week. Pod Save the People is a production of Crooked Media. It's produced by Brock Wilbur and mixed by Bill Lands. Our executive producers, Jessica Cordova-Kramer and myself. Special thanks to our weekly contributors, Kai Henderson, D.R. Ballinger, and Samuel Shinyangwe. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader, Like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home.